So, Joshua 1. What is this really all about? Well, I titled the sermon, Our Steadfast Savior. Because if you look at the passage, the passage is really about God. It is really about the rock of our salvation. It is about what he is going to do in the midst of this transition and how he is going to be with them and carry them. And so as we think about that, as we think about our steadfast Savior, the first thing that you'll see here in this passage is that his promise is sure. His promise is sure. You see it right there at the beginning as he comes to Joshua and as he reminds him and he tells Joshua that he is going to give him every place that he sets his foot. And he says, as I promised Moses. As I promised Moses, that promise is carrying on to you. Now, Moses is dead, but God's promise is not dead. Moses, this leader, this, this mythic leader, really, I mean, he was a phenomenal force in the life of Israel. I mean, imagine his calling at the beginning of the book of Exodus as a stutterer, someone who was not eloquent, who did not, you know, he, he really was not the guy if you were going by human standards. But God pulled him out and crafted him into this amazing leader who brought the people out of Egypt an incredible feat. Um, and all along the way, himself trusting in God's work. And the people seeing all of these things happen, right? It's a phenomenal story. And Moses was the leader par excellence for them. I mean, he had brought them into their own. He was their leader when they went through all of that amazing stuff. And the passage begins by telling us, Moses, my servant, is dead. But my promise lives on. I I am going to do for you what I promised way back then. And what's, what's even more interesting, what, what's more encouraging is that the promise wasn't just to Moses. It was a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Because it's the promise that God gave Abraham that he would make Abraham a great man and a, a great family man and that, he would, make, uh, that he, would, he would give him a land and that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sands on the seashore. So that was the promise given way back to Abraham. And now here are these people numbering in the millions and they have come out of Egypt and they've been led by this man who's died. But God is saying that promise way back there is still in effect today. And I am going to see that that promise is fulfilled. Even though Moses, this great and, and awesome leader, is gone from the scene, I am going to do it. I am going to see that that happens. Now, when you hear that word promise, what do you think? Have you ever had... I mean, just think at kind of the gut level, promise. When someone says to me, I promise you, and then they tell me something, you know what I usually think? Mm. 
When someone, because we usually use that word promise. We usually say, I promise you. In order to be emphatic or to emphasize maybe something that isn't quite as certain as we want it to be. And so we say, I promise, in order to shore up what may not be a real certainty. How many of you all have had a promise made to you that was broken? Like almost every hand went up. Yeah. Right? So we're familiar. How many of you, this is the season, isn't it? Politicians are on television making lots of promises. Are we having a bad storm out there again? Listen, we have tornado shelters this week, okay? Designated tornado shelters. Listen, promise. When we hear that word promise, there's a part of us that goes, okay, that's good. But there's another part of us that is skeptical. Because we've had promises made and broken. We, we listen to people promise all sorts of things on, on newscasts. And we, we, we know that for much of the world, promises are vacuous. But when you see that word attached to God here in the scriptures, in the, in the word, you can take it all the way to the bank. Because when he says, I promise, he means it. This is not some wishy-washy, willy-nilly promise. These are promises that are sure and certain. They are grounded. They are grounded in who God is. He doesn't change. That's one of the things that we learn about him is that he's unchangeable. And so when he says that he's promising here, he really means it. And we can really bank on it just exactly the way that Joshua did. And so that's what we need to think about when we, when we hear this and when we hear these words about him promising. Now, I want you to think about this because here stands Joshua. An untested leader, really. And his job is to lead the people into the land through the Jordan to take conquest of this land, having now wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And it's a land, remember, Joshua knows quite well. What is it filled with? Giants. It is filled with large people who are great warriors, and they were, they were so frightened by them the first time, 40 years earlier, that they came out terrified. And now Joshua is going to lead these people into that land. And in order for God to get them moving, he says, trust me. Trust me as you go into this unknown area. Trust me as you go into this land of giants that my promise will be good for you. Now fast forward. Fast forward a couple thousand years to Jesus. On the scene with his disciples, with his apostles. And just like Joshua, they're new. They have wobbly knees. They're in, they, they will soon be in transition. When he talks to them in Matthew 16, if you want to write that, little, that verse down, or if you want to look at it, that's okay too. Matthew 16, verse 15. There's a little interaction there. 15, 16, 17, 18. When you first read it, you don't think it's terribly much, but here's what happens. Jesus says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? 
And verse 16, Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you but by man, but my Father in heaven. And then he says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Mm. Those are really big words. Because in that moment, now... Never mind that there's a huge split right here in Matthew chapter 16 in which um, some people believe that Jesus was saying, on you, Peter, your person, I will build my church. Hence, right, the succession of popes, starting with Peter. And then there's a whole other group who believe that he was saying, on your confession that I am the Lord, my church will be built. And so Jesus says to him, I think, on your confession, Peter, is where, is where the church will stand. Your confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is where the church will go up and be erected and be built. And it's a steadfast foundation. And he tells them that he will build his church. Isn't that interesting? Because, listen... Like it or not, believe it or not, what we often think is if we plug all of the right pieces in, if we sit down and logically put all everything right in together, that the other side of it will be exactly what we want. Our church will be just what we want, just how we want it to look and be because we've done all of the things that we thought we were supposed to have done. And what God says and what Jesus says is, I am building my church. How about be faithful to the things he's called us to do and be? And He will grow us. And and we will be what He wants us to be. It really is kind of that sort of a, a simple idea. If you fast forward a little bit more to Acts chapter 1, there's another interaction. This time, Jesus has been crucified, buried, and now He has been resurrected and He shows Himself. And so they come together in, in verse 6 of Acts 1 and we read this. So when they met together, they asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So He's, he's been resurrected and the disciples are excited and they're like, this is it, right? You're going to do all that great amazing stuff we thought you were going to do when you were with us before, but now that you've died and you've come back... This, this is going to be the time, right? Wrong. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power, He, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. An amazing time of transition for these guys. They all went into hiding at the death of Jesus. But now he's brought them back. And what does he tell them? Essentially, he tells them just a couple of things here. The first is, you are going to have all the power you need to do what I've called you to do. Because, you're, because my spirit is going to come and reside with you. And, number three, you will be my witnesses to the world. What an amazing promise. Listen, you have all that you need. It's exactly the same for us today. We have all we need. We have the Spirit of God residing in us, which is the power of God that Paul says brought Jesus from the grave. 
residing in us to go into the world to be his witnesses. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that good news? Here's here's an awesome part of this. No matter who is up here, no matter who is on your session, what elders are in this church, no matter what is taking place in leadership in this body, you have all you need for ministry. You have exactly what He ordained that you would have in order to be His witnesses in Lake Oconee and Eatonton and Greensboro and Madison and to the rest of the world. You have it all. Because He's given it to you already. And that's His promise. Very similar in nature. Isn't it? it's, it's kind of a recrafting, if you will, of Joshua 1, that I will be with you. Don't fear. Be strong. Be courageous. Go out into the world because I'm with you. I.e., Acts 1, my spirit will be in you. G.K. Chesterson said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Here's the second thing that we want to look at this morning. As we think about our Savior who doesn't change, our steadfast Savior, we'll notice in this passage that His presence is encouraging. His presence is encouraging. Verses 5 and 9. God promises Joseph, or Joshua in the midst of all of this, in the midst of everything that's happening, He promises His presence. He tells Joshua that just as He was with Moses, so He will be with Joshua. And there are two parts to the promise, really. And they are this. I will never leave you, and I will be with you wherever you go. I will never leave you. I will be with you wherever you go. Now, I want you to know this about what he's saying. This is not some sentimental, I will be with you. You know, this isn't, this isn't the football player on the field after the game, and, and, they, and they interview him. His, his father or mother has just died, and they rush out on the field, and they say, how does it feel? And he says, I know that so-and-so is watching over me. Okay. This is not that. This is completely different from that. That is, a, that is a sentimental feeling that the individual has. Okay? That is not what is being promised here to Joshua. I will be with you. I will go with you wherever you go. That's not mere, you know, a sentimental statement that is given to Joshua. And here's why. Go back and look at the way in which God was with Moses and the Israelites. How was he with them? Well, he was with them in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He was with them as the death angel came over Egypt. He, he was with them in the tabernacle when the glory cloud came down and made his presence known. He was, he was visible He was with Moses when Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And so God hid him in the cleft of the rock and let him see his backside and his face shone. 
God's presence with Moses was incredibly palpable. It, it was, he was there. He was with them. The people knew in their camp, all of them faced the tabernacle. They were encamped around the tabernacle. So when they walked out in the morning, they saw two things, usually, hopefully. <laughs> One is they would see the smoke rising from sacrifices. A reminder of what? Their sin. And then they would see the glory cloud descended upon the tabernacle. A reminder of what? God's presence with them. They knew God's presence was with them because it was a visible presence. It was a mediated presence though. They couldn't just march into the Holy of Holies. They couldn't just go where that presence resided. Remember when the, when the smoke came down and, and God descended upon uh, Mount Sinai? They were forbidden from even touching the mountain. God said, don't even put foot on the mountain. Because I'm there in its holy ground. But if you fast forward to Hebrews, what you read is that we're in, we're in even closer contact with God now. But it's different. It's better. It's sweeter. Because we have the great high priest who has gone through and made the way clear for us. And so we have access to the Father that Moses and, and the Israelites never had. And though they had this great glory cloud, they didn't have the Spirit of God residing in them the way that you and I do. And so God's... This is hard for us. Because we're, we want tangible. We want to live by sight. Not by faith. If you think seeing the glory cloud would be better than having the Spirit of God reside in you by the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you're missing it. Because what you have is far greater. You have the Spirit of God residing in you. They had the Spirit of God in a glory cloud hovering over the temple and the mountain. And so His presence is a great encouragement to us. We also have the power of the Spirit. We've talked about that. Here's the third thing. In this passage, we learn that His Word is central to our lives. You see it right in the middle of verses 6, 7, and 8. In the midst of those verses... There's a threefold exhortation to Joshua to be strong and be courageous. Be strong, be courageous, be strong, be courageous, be very strong, be very courageous. And right in the middle of all of that, what do we read? We read some really incredible words in verse 8 where he tells Joshua, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It's a powerful reminder about this very simple truth. We do not set our own course nor our own rules. He does. There's three parts, three exhortations, and two results about the Word. Here's the first First exhortation, don't let it depart from your mouth. The word is actually mutter over it. Have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen maybe a clip on the news? Maybe you've been to the Wailing Wall 
and you've seen um, men, they're up there, they, they take these little prayers, they roll them up, they stick them into the wall, and then they, they mutter. And they're, they're muttering the Torah as they do that. It's a, uh, it, it's a repetition sort of a thing, and, and it helps in memorization. And so they have uh, probably seen pictures in the you know, last ten years of madrasas where young boys, uh, Arab boys, are learning um, the Quran. And they're rocking. And so that rocking motion, that muttering of the word, helps to cement it. And that's the idea here. Mutter over the word. Let the word be in your mouth constantly, day and night, all the time. Don't, don't let the word get away from you. Mutter over it. And then he says, meditate on it. So speak it. Think about it. Ponder it in your head, mull it over, and meditate on that word day and night. And then the the third thing here is, he says, be careful to follow it. So, speak it, think it, do it. And then what does he say? You will be prosperous and you will be successful. Prosperous and successful. Now, this isn't a health, wealth, prosperous and successful, okay? So if I memorize a hundred verses and then um, talk about them to 25 people and make sure I do every single one of them, then I'm going to have a lot of money and a big house and blah, 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 whatever. It's not a formula like that. What he is simply saying is you will, by God's plan, you will be all that he's called you to be. You will be prosperous and successful in the eyes of the Lord. You will be the person that He wants you to be in this life. And so the Word is central to our lives. It's central to our being. Isn't it amazing that in the midst of all of this, so there's all this chaos swirling. Moses has died. They're going to go in and take the promised land. And God comes to Joshua. And in one verse He says, "Hmm, Don't forget my Word. Don't forget my word. And what is he saying in that? Really what he's saying is don't forget me. Don't forget me. I mean, when you go to the word, what are you doing? If you go to the word and all you're hoping for is to cull from it some promises about, you know, how great things are going to be in your life, you're missing it. Because what is the word? The word is a story about God's redemption of man. That's what the word is. And so when you read the Bible, what you are reading is a story about God from beginning to end, loving us and taking care of us and redeeming us. That's what the Bible really is. And so when you meditate on it, what are you meditating on? You're meditating on a great God who came down to this planet and loved us with an amazing love. You're thinking about God. When the people went in to take the land, when they go in, what you'll see a little bit later is that they're reminded, they're reminded to not forget God. Because as they go in, what are they going to do? They're going to take possession of all this amazing stuff. And so he says, you're going to take possession of houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, and and vineyards you didn't plant. And then he says, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land. Don't forget. And so in the middle of all the turmoil, Joshua 1.8, don't let the book of the law depart from you. Mary and I have talked, elders, and we've all, we're, we're talking 
to the best of my ability as your pastor, the Word will be central to everything we do. And we will meditate on it. And we will love it. And we will read it. And we will study it. And, and there will be Bible studies. And because, because that keeps us grounded and focused upon who we are and what we've been called to do. You get away from the Word, you start relying upon your own wisdom and, and, your, and our own ingenuity, and we'll forget that it's, He's the one that bought and paid for us. And so the Word is central to our lives. It's central to everything we do here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. We're not about our own business. We're about His business. And so here's the fourth thing quickly, is you'll see His people are unified. His people are unified. So if you look at the passage, it, it breaks down strangely. It's, it's a little bit long, but the first nine verses are God dealing with Joshua. And then, and then there's a handful of verses here where Joshua is dealing with the people. And then there's a reflection back from the people. But one of the things you'll notice as you work your way down is in verse 12, there's an admonition. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And what does Joshua say to them? Essentially, here's what he says. He says, guys, you got your piece of the pie. Now it's time for you to help them get their piece of the pie. And if you read through it, here's, here's what had happened. What had happened was those tribes already had their land, and it was on the eastern side of the Jordan. So they were already there. They were already at rest. They were already, they were, they were setting up their barns and they were putting up fences and they were going to start living life. But there's an entire whole nother chunk of land that the conquest has to take care of. And so they're going to now cross from the east. They're going to cross the Jordan. They're going to go into the, into the west. And that is where all these, the campaigns are going to take place. And so there had, been a, there had been a promise made, and the promise was that those, half, those tribes that were on the eastern side were going to help in the conquest of the western side. Oh, but think about it. How hard would that be? I mean, you're there, you're settled, you've got your clan, your family's together, everything's good, it's, it's peachy on your side. But those guys are going to go fight. And Joshua comes to him and he says, you've got your slice of the pie, guys. Now it's time for you to join your brothers in arms and go help them get their slice of the pie. He's, he's reminding them of their promise and he's telling them that they are to be unified now in the conquest of the land. Even though they got theirs, the right thing for them to do is to join up and to go help the, the other tribes get their peace on the other side. It's a beautiful picture, really, of God drawing His people together in unity, pushing towards the same thing, even though it, it would have absolutely no effect on them. It was the right thing for them to do. It was a call not only to heal the deal that had been made, but to do the right thing because they were connected to them. Connected. It's a principle that comes all the way down through Scripture. There's a story a little bit later in the book of Joshua about Achan. Do you all remember Achan? As they went in and they took possession of this land, they were not to keep... This, these cities were devoted to the Lord. 
And so they were not to take possession of the goodies, all of the, in pirate lingo, the booty. They weren't to take possession of all that for themselves, but they went in and Achan did. Remember, he took some really nice stuff and he went and he dug a hole in his tent and he put it down in there. And, and oh, by the way, the Lord found out. And they went out and they lost a big battle. And so they came back and they lined all the tribes up and they went through them tribe by tribe by tribe. And the Lord called out the tribe of Achan and the clan of Achan. And for the sin of Achan, the whole family, the whole family was stoned. And it's a powerful reminder that we're connected, okay? God draws us together and He sees us not as individuals. We're very individualistic. You're going to leave here today and most of you are just going to go home. But we're connected. We are a connected group of people. Like it or not, if you've joined in membership here, you are really connected. Okay? Because you've said, I am a part of this body. And God treats us and He works with us and He deals with us as not just individuals, but as people together. And that's why this idea of unity in this passage is so important. It's so critical that those tribes joined their other brothers and went to battle for land that they would never even live in. It was critical for them to all be unified together, going into battle together for the same thing. Because God sees us as a whole. He deals with us as a whole. Therefore... We're connected. When there are divisions in the body, it affects us all. When there's unity in the body, it affects us all. We said this maybe a couple of weeks ago, but one of the things that the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about our gifts, remember, is he he reminds us to not be jealous of other gifts and to look at hand or look at a foot or, you know, he tells us to be united and he reminds us that our gifts are for the good of the body. So, you have gifts and talents and abilities. You've joined this church. You're a regular attender of this church. Guess what? You're here not for yourself, but you're here for us. And we're here for you because that's how the body works. That's how the body functions. It's all together. You know, the hip bones connect to the... And all that sort of thing. And so we're all connected together just like that. And it's good. And that's the way that God intended it to be. And I would just close with this. If you think about it. Jesus died to add you to His church. Remember, He is building His church. And as He dies, as He died, and He paid for your sin... And He added you to the body as you come to the body. He's the one that's joined you. He is the one that has brought you in. And so you've been connected to the whole that He Himself died for and will return for. Because He's not coming for a group of individuals. He's not going to come, hey, Jimmy, Bobby, Billy. He's going to come and go, church, arise, come to me. I bought you and I paid for you and you're mine. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Our steadfast Savior has given to us His promise. He loves us. 
He will go with us. He's promised His presence with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's given His Word to us that we would build and we would grow and we would learn and and the Word would be central to everything that we do. And He's asked us and told us that we need to be unified in everything we do as His people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for the opportunity to come to sing Your praise, to be reminded of Your goodness to us. We thank You, O Lord, for Your promise and for Your presence with us, for Your Word that leads, guides, and directs us. We thank You as well, Father, that You have called us to be joined together, that we would be Your people, glorifying You. Um, And so, Father, we pray. That as we go, we will meditate on the Word and we'll be joined together with fellow believers, all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.